This is Important, a podcast by the Brexit Civil Society Alliance. I am Jacob Millen Bamford. Brexit brings the responsibility for negotiating trade deals back to Westminster. For the last 40 years, while the UK has been a member of the EU, negotiating trade deals with other countries has been the EU's job. With this returning to Westminster, there has been a renewed focus on trade deals, how they are negotiated, scrutinised and who benefits. What is a trade deal then, and why should you care? When I imagine trade deals, I think of abstract documents with hundreds of pages detailing the price of car parts and where they came from. While this image is not entirely wrong, trade deals do cover far more. At the most basic, a trade agreement is an agreement between countries which aims to reduce the barriers to trade between them. These agreements cover three basic areas. Tariffs, where a country taxes imports, for example, at the moment the US charges a 25% tariff on imports of scotch. And the EU charges a 25% tariff on imports of bourbon. Trade deals aim to reduce these tariffs. A second reason is technical barriers to trade. This is when a country has domestic laws on things such as labelling or technical standards that without these, businesses from other countries are in effect barred from the market. For an example, the UK currently doesn't require alcohol packaging to warn of the health risks to drinking during pregnancy. Both New Zealand and Australia require this though. Therefore, if a UK alcohol exporter wants to trade there, they need to comply with these additional requirements. And finally, sanitary and phytosanitary measures that aim to protect human, animal and plant health. The famous EU ban on chlorinated chicken falls within this category. These are the three main areas of what trade deals aim to accomplish, but they are far broader than this in reality, often covering services, intellectual property, investment and rules covering workers' rights, competition, consumer and environmental standards. To understand trade deals and their impact better, I spoke with two experts in the field of trade and standards. To understand trade deals and the processes surrounding them, I spoke to Ruth Bergen, a senior advisor at the Trade Justice Movement. Can you outline how a trade deal happens? Sure. So actually, the way that they happen differs slightly between different countries, but a, a kind of basic way of looking at it is, first of all, there's usually some sort of scoping assessment, which tells you what the impact of a deal might be. Then countries produce negotiating mandates, which lays out the areas that they want to cover. Uh, so the mandate that they, they're giving themselves for the negotiations, which is then handed over to the negotiators, and the negotiators go into kind of usually pretty lengthy negotiations on what are now a very broad range of, of topics. And I, I think the quickest trade deal done was about four months between the US and Jordan. I think that was it was quite a lightweight trade deal and a, a more usual length of time for the negotiations is between five and 10 years. So for example, the EU-Canada deal took seven years to negotiate. And they're really quite broad ranging, covering things like access to services, intellectual property, so the patents that you have on things like medicines and seeds, obviously goods and the, and the tariffs that you're going to charge at borders and so on. Um, they often run to a couple of thousand pages of 
technical legal language by the time that they're done. So the negotiations happen, they're concluded, and then you have ratification. And how that works actually differs quite a lot from country to country. And I know we're going to talk a bit more about that. But that's the point at which Parliament gets a bit more involved. And in the EU, the European Parliament has a vote on deals. In the UK, as we'll get on to, the UK doesn't have a binding vote on deals. What is the aim of trade deals? So the the basis for all bilateral trade deals are the agreements that have been concluded at the World Trade Organization. And the aim of that is to liberalise trade. Uh, So to reduce barriers to trade and tariffs are a very easy way of thinking about that. So where you might have had high tariffs, say on car parts or food, you agree between countries that you're all going to reduce your tariffs. And that stops anyone from feeling like they're reducing their tariffs and they're going to see, you know, lots of imports of goods produced outside of their, their country. And it means that everybody's moving at the same time. And so nobody feels like they're going to be disadvantaged and and. The theory goes that that you therefore have countries producing more efficiently, able to import or export into other countries, and that therefore prices go down, efficiency is increased, consumers benefit, um, etc. And, and when you look at what the WTO says, um, it will quite often present free trade as a bit of a panacea. So, you know, efficiency gains, uh, more competition is not just good for prices, but also good for the environment, for uh, labour rights, for human rights, uh, and so on. Um, One of the things that underpins this approach is the idea that um, if you increase trade, you also increase GDP, you create a bigger middle class, and therefore they start demanding, you know, with their additional resources and free time, they start demanding increases in things like environmental regulation. So, So that's the kind of premise of it. All of this sounds good. For this episode, I also spoke with an expert on food standards. Please, can you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Kath Dalmeny, and I am the Chief Executive of Sustain, which is an alliance of food and farming organisations. And relevant to our conversation today, I've been the the sort of lead on behalf of the alliance on Brexit issues. Oh, lucky me, ever since the referendum. Um, And also, um, I'm more recently the chair of the British Future Standards Coalition. Thanks, Kath. For me, trade deals seem to be all about products such as car parts and how much they cost. Can you explain how trade deals also impact on our rights and standards? Well, I like to use some really ordinary examples. So, for example, uh, we have always had in this country very high standards of, I'm going to sound like a complete nerd here, but compositional standards for baby food, for example. Let's just take one tiny example where it obviously matters what babies put in their mouths and what parents can feel confident to give to a baby. What is in a jar when you buy a pre-prepared meal that you're not uh, making yourself is very much down to the standards that are agreed between trading nations. And there are, for example, standards for the water that goes into a food that's being made for your baby. There are maximum mercury levels. There are maximum pesticide residue levels. There are compositional standards saying what are the nutritional quality of that food should be. There is a limit on the amount of sugar that can be put into food for a very small child because these things really matter for their health. And as a society, we've decided, looking at the science, looking at the priorities, to decide that there are compositional 
and safety standards for baby food. Three cheers. As a parent, I'm very glad that somebody sorted that out for me because those technical things are not necessarily things you know about when you start feeding your baby and also you want that food to be safe. Um, unfortunately, different countries have different standards. So you might have different standards of mercury allowed. You might have different standards for the water that goes into that food. You might have, as is the case with some of the nations we're about to start trading with, you have different levels of sugar that are allowed. Now, that might not matter to the trade negotiator in the room when they're also, as you say, arguing about car parts. But the trouble is that these standards get uh, sort of bought and sold off against each other in the negotiation. And really, we are arguing at the moment to say that's really, really, really not acceptable. The kinds of standards that are being talked about for food when we leave the European Union in the international trade negotiation scene have to be only decided on the basis of public interest. And public interest is, as the British public have often said very loudly in all surveys and in all opportunities to speak out, high food standards is absolutely fundamental to what we want for our future. I agree. High food standards are crucial. How can we protect these rights in trade deals? Well, if you'll pardon the terrible food pun, uh, there's an enormous bun fight going on in Parliament about this. And it is being focused at the moment on the Agriculture Bill. So for people who are may or may not be familiar with parliamentary process, we have to have various legislation in place to replace the kinds of systems that we have been in, in the while we've, whilst we've been in the European Union. So we need to replace the common agricultural policy with our own domestic legislation. We need to replace the common fisheries policy with our own domestic legislation. And we need to replace our trading arrangements because we haven't been an independent trading nation for so many years, among many other things. So that's by no means a full list. And... There is an agriculture bill, agriculture legislation going through Parliament at the moment, and there is a number of good things about that, uh, as it was created under Michael Gove and has been now under the leadership of um, George Eustace, who's the Secretary of State for DEFRA. Um, there's some good things in there about directing public money to help alleviate environmental problems. There's some good things in there about fair dealing in the supply chain, so rights of, of different players within the supply chain. There is a, a bit that is being fought over immensely at the moment, which is whether or not the Agriculture Bill could say the food standards that we enjoy now should be maintained in law. So not left, the subtext of that is to not be left to trade negotiators to be used as a bargaining chip in future trade negotiations. And the reason that's such a big bun fight is because if we tie the hands of the trade negotiators, then we might not get quite such big financially lucrative deals when we try and negotiate with huge players who want to get into our agriculture market. And more than that, they also want a route into the European market. At the Brexit Civil Society Alliance, we produce a range of resources to help break down how Brexit will impact civil society organisations across the UK. This includes analysis and blogs from our members, resources such as our campaign toolkit, and a weekly e-bulletin. The e-bulletin drops in your inbox every Friday and includes analysis of what's happening with Brexit in politics, policy and events. It also looks ahead to key parliamentary events and always includes recommended reading for your Friday. Find all this and subscribe to the bulletin at www.brexitcivilsocietyalliance.org. Ruth. We've spoken about what generally happens with how trade deals come about, but can you talk a bit about the process in the UK? Sure. So I think what's important to remember here is what's required of the government in terms of negotiating trade deals 
and what happens in practice. So in practice at the moment, the UK is following some of the things that I outlined before. So for example, on the US trade deal, it did a scoping exercise, it laid objectives, uh, made objectives public. Um, There was a debate um, in the House of Parliament. It has set up some forms of scrutiny. So there were consultations run on the US, New Zealand, Australia, and something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. And then it has a set of stakeholder consultation forums. So it does a scoping exercise. It puts that together with its negotiating mandate. That's made public. There's a debate in Parliament. Through the process, it is supposed to produce reports and engage with the International Trade Committee of the House of Commons. And at the end, once the treaty is finalised, it lays that before Parliament and Parliament has the opportunity to look at the treaty. So on paper, that sounds quite good. The problem is that, first of all, none of this is required of the government. So none of it is um, enshrined in primary legislation, which is what we've been pushing for in the trade bill that's still making its way through the Houses of Parliament. Also, for example, the debate in the House of Commons on the negotiating mandate has no bearing on that mandate. So it's a sort of discussion, it's an opportunity for MPs to look at what's being proposed, but they're not allowed to sort of say, well, we don't agree with this, or actually we think this should be amended. There's no presumption of transparency. So negotiating texts are not published as a matter of course throughout the negotiation. So whilst you're getting updates in theory, actually what we've been finding is that they're just not detailed enough for, for us to understand actually what the impact will be. So we don't know, for example what the position will be on access to services. And there's a big debate about what's called negative listing versus positive listing. If you introduce a negative listing, you open up all of your privatised services to US companies without exception. And the only way you can introduce exceptions is if you specifically list them at the time when you, you do the negotiations. So health services would only be excluded if you specifically say that. And you have to do it in quite a detailed way at the time of the negotiations. If you have a positive listing, for example, you say specifically which uh, services are going to be liberalised, so opened up to US companies, and only those services are, are opened up. So it's quite a big difference and it's quite important. And at the moment, that's one of the very important things that we just don't have any detail on. And there are sort of lots and lots of examples of that throughout the trade deal where we're not getting enough detail to be able to make a, a sensible assessment of what's happening. So that's that's the kind of while the negotiations are happening, essentially, the information is kept very much confidential. We then do have, so there's a strategic trade advisory group. There used to be a place, a civil society organisation. It was a fair trade foundation until recently. We think that they haven't been given a place. I think the membership of the renewed STAG is yet to be announced, We th- but we, we understand that civil society organisations won't be represented on that. That's the main forum that will, I think, get access to confidential information. And they've been asked to sign non-disclosure agreements, so we won't see any of that. There are then a set of 11 trade advisory groups. Again, these are exclusively for business. That's a change. They used to be a bit more mixed with more representation from academia and from trade unions in particular and, and from civil society organisations. That changed just a couple of months ago. We were taken off all of the trade advisory groups. We are now on what's called a thematic working group. We have understood that to be a downgrading of our group. We don't quite understand why we would have a different name for our group. 
civil servants are very keen to stress that it's not, but we have yet to see the evidence that that's the case. We were also asked to sign non-disclosure agreements and had a number of concerns about them, so we didn't sign. We were in a discussion about that, but that seems to have fizzled out somewhat, and we are are yet to to see what that we're yet to get any response in terms of whether we will be able to access more sensitive information. So we're on a thematic working group. We don't think we're going to get information uh, access to particularly useful information. And, and what we're getting is quite top line updates from, from civil servants. So negotiations will continue and probably several years down the line, we will finally get the text of the treaty. And this is where the UK process gets really problematic. The Constitutional Reform and Governance Act, CRAG, only provides for this 2,000 pages of complex treaty to be laid before Parliament for 21 sitting days. It's really not enough for ordinary MPs who have lots lots of other things to look at and are maybe not experts in trade agreements to get their head around and to understand what the full Im- implications of this. They have the right to look at it. They can call for a vote in, in Parliament, but it's quite difficult to get there because the opposition would have to use one of just 20 opposition days in order to get that debate and vote. Even if they vote against it, the government can keep bringing it back and then they have to find additional days to discuss it. So it's a really, really problematic process. It's been criticised by five separate committees in the Houses of Parliament and government hasn't moved on that. Probably need to acknowledge that there has been some movement in in terms of the creation of various committees, consultations at at the beginning of negotiations, although these were deeply flawed. The, The questions that we were asked from the consultations were frankly laughable. The end of the process remains very, very problematic. And none of these provisions in terms of consultation are binding on the government. What about the devolved administrations? How are they involved? So again, it's limited to discussion. They don't have any formal role in terms of ratification or formal input into the negotiations. So I I think There are six weekly meetings of senior civil servants um, and monthly updates on the negotiations. But that's it, really. Um, So they they don't have a formal role in the negotiations at the moment. Kath, once again, thinking about rights and standards, how are devolved administrations affected by trade deals? That's a really good question. And I don't think that has come to the fore. I'm fascinated by the question, actually, because... um, I'm from Scotland originally, as you might tell from my surname, Dalmany. It's a little village outside Edinburgh. Um, And it's always of interest to me about the different um, priorities in health and environment and farming and food in the two different countries, because I have family both sides of the border. I actually have family in Ireland as well. So actually, all of this different ways that people approach wanting to regulate their food system is hugely interesting. But I think that what has not come to the fore is how much that will be hobbled uh, restricted by future trade deals or if we are trading as a as a one unit as the UK. So let's give an example. For example, uh, Scotland wants to bring in controls on alcohol because they've got high rates of alcoholism, problems with mental health issues there. In a trade deal, that might be considered to be an unfair discriminatory approach within trading that one country within the UK had controls on alcohol. For example, Scotland is trying to do minimum unit pricing on alcohol to as a public health measure. Now, they would have to justify that in all kinds of ways in a World Trade Organization situation um, on scientific grounds. 
And of course, that isn't necessarily a science-based policy intervention. It's a decision by a sovereign nation like Scotland to try and address their alcohol problem. But would they be able to uphold that in a trade deal? Would they have the power to stop a trade deal going through that had restricted those kind of um, policy measures? We don't know that yet, nor do we know whether the trade negotiations will be allowed to have that kind of conversation in the room or whether Scotland would be invited in to have that conversation at all. If you are enjoying This Is Important, please subscribe to us on Spotify or your favourite podcast provider of choice and share it with your friends and colleagues. Tweet us at BrexitCSA or email your thoughts to info at BrexitCivilSocietyAlliance.org. We are always keen to hear what you think, so please do get in touch. Ruth, I've heard the term crag when talking about trade deals and the parliamentary process in the UK. I know it stands for the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act 2010. But please, could you explain what CRAG actually is? So it's an act that was passed in 2010, but actually it's a a sort of revamp of something called the Ponsonby Rule that's about 100 years old. So that kind of tells you one of the reasons why it's no longer really appropriate. And it's intended to apply to the making of international treaties, but when the Ponsonby Rule was first developed... It was actually kind of talking about defence treaties and treaties that have a much more limited scope than modern trade deals do. And as I've explained, basically all it sets out is the kind of process for ratification so that Parliament will view the finalised deal for 21 sitting days and have an opportunity to have a have a debate and a non-binding vote. I mean, that's it's as simple as that, really. But it's the thing that the government intends to use to govern the way that trade deals are are ratified. We've discussed that the process in Westminster leaves something to be desired when it comes to involvement of MPs and devolved administrations. My understanding is that several committees in Parliament have made recommendations to improve the process. Please can you outline what they've recommended? Yeah, so I mean, they recommended quite a lot. So I'll just bring out some of the, the key ones. But the first one that I think is really important, and this was recommended by the International Trade Committee, was a presumption of transparency through the negotiations. They wanted to see the consultation processes formalised, so a requirement rather than just a kind of agreement to consult with the various different sectors. They wanted to ensure that there was clarity of information. So the debate on the mandate that at the moment is just sort of a discussion, they wanted that to be uh, amendable in a substantive motion, so to have an impact on the mandate itself. They highlighted CRAG as completely inadequate to the purpose, in particular that they wanted a binding yes or no vote on on the deals. And they also recommended that there be a committee specifically tasked with scrutiny of the trade deals. And of course, the International Trade Committee recommended itself, which makes a lot of sense, but that for that to be a formal requirement. And also a statutory requirement to consult with business, civil society organisations and the public. So to, again, to put that on a statutory footing rather than a sort of voluntary footing as it currently is. The rights and standards we enjoy need protecting too. Kath, is there anything we can do to protect them in trade deals? As I say, I'm not an expert in trade to enable these things legally speaking, so I'm not a trained lawyer or anything, and you do get to have a lot of lawyers hanging around in trade world, is we need some things like the Convention on Biological Diversity, like the One Health Plan internationally for controlling antibiotic use, decent antibiotic stewardship, like the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, that 
excuse the word, trump other concerns, which is to say those things are more important than facilitating forests being cut down. They are more important than facilitating uh, very poor antibiotic use. And we could have some basics that all countries have to comply with before they can participate in this kind of um, activity. For example, not using antibiotics as growth promoters, which has been banned in all sensible nations for years. And we shouldn't be facilitating that anywhere anymore. And things like requiring countries even to be tracking how much they're using and things. And they are in each of the subject areas, there will be some baseline stuff to be argued about and some aspirations to be arguing about. But we should be trying to make trade push for a race to the top on some really key big, big humanity issues rather than allowing it to be a force for race to the bottom. If you're feeling a bit excluded from the process of negotiating trade deals and securing the rights and standards we enjoy, I've asked both our guests what you can do to get involved and help. So I, I think it is just a question of getting informed and, and using that information, you know, working locally on local campaigning um, and working with MPs and, and then kind of joining national campaigns, partners that we have, including More On One, Global Justice Now, Friends of the Earth, even WWF are all now working on this and people will no doubt have seen the Jamie Oliver campaign around food standards. So there's a lot already happening that people can get involved with. And I think also just looking locally at sort of what you might be able to create yourselves or campaign on yourselves it is really worthwhile. Well, in if you're in the UK and you are prepared to write to your MP, now is the time to do it because this legislation on the UK's approach to food and farming is going through Houses of Parliament right now and of course we've got loads of distractions like brexit and covid i totally understand that but we've got to get this right so your mp hearing that food standards matter is really important because public opinion does still have some sway even in these mad times and people like jamie oliver have been stepping up to talk about this you've only whittingstall bbc country file presenter all kinds of people to say do not sell out our food standards because they really matter to the British public and that needs to be heard loud and clear. As a final question is there anything you would like to plug for those listening to this episode? So we'll be working in the next year on the impact of trade policy and trade agreements for climate and for the COP26 negotiations so we'd really like people to get involved in in that side of things. I know there'll be a lot of people working on COP26 negotiations anyway, but we're really keen that we try and join these things up because at the moment we don't deal with trade agreements and climate agreements at the same in, in the same space. So trade agreements are binding and enforceable with all of the necessary mechanisms to do that. Climate agreements and environmental agreements, as I understand it, are neither of those things. They are not enforceable. They are not binding. There's nothing to make anyone do any of the stuff that they say they will. And we think this is a huge problem because inevitably trade priorities trump climate and environmental priorities. And we think that needs to change. And we think COP26, the UK being in the position that it is negotiating new trade agreements for the first time, is a big opportunity potentially to, to do something about that. So we'll be producing reports. We'll be tweeting about it at uh, at trade justice mob if you want to follow us and yeah please do watch this space look at what other organizations are doing and get involved well if people are living in in your own locality get involved in food and in the way that suits you 
because I what I'd like to plug is getting political about food. It is a joyful subject to be involved with. It is a difficult subject to be involved with, but you'll never ever be bored. Someone near you is running some amazing food project, whether it's an enterprise, a garden, a food partnership in your local area, an initiative to try and help people on a low income get access to good food, a wonderful new way of dealing with enterprise and land. Something is going on in your area, and if it isn't, you could start one. So there's some fantastic things that people can get involved with. When we take food seriously, we all have a better life. This podcast was made by the Brexit Civil Society Alliance. We are a UK-wide alliance of charities, voluntary and campaigning organisations. The alliance does not take a position on the 2016 EU referendum, but seeks to raise concerns on behalf of its members and work to ensure that the Brexit process delivers on three principles. Open and accountable lawmaking, a high standard UK and no governance gap after Brexit. You can get in touch with us via Twitter at BrexitCSA or email us at info at brexitcivilsocietyalliance.org. Please subscribe on Spotify or your favourite podcast app and share this with your friends and colleagues. Links to the campaigns and resources mentioned by guests will be linked in the show notes. We also have further resources on COVID-19 and EU citizens on our website, also linked in the show notes. Our show is researched by Catherine Sturgeon, which is produced and hosted by me, Jacob Millen-Bamford. You've been listening to This is important. 